This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The province has approved LRT. Uh, this includes the added length that goes now, of course, uh, back out to Eastgate to talk more about all of this and give us an update. Mayor for the city of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, is with us and he's on the line now. Hello, Mayor Fred. How are you today? I'm just great, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, first of all, uh, LRT rhetoric, and you know, on both sides, kind of silent or dying down over the summer. Is that just people on vacation, or have we come to a, you know, sort of a, an agreement here that this is all moving forward and we're all going to uh, row in the same direction? Well, that's uh, that's certainly my hope, and uh, you know the, uh, the the most recent council uh, vote had everything to do with the environmental assessment and advancing that to the province to get on to next steps. And uh, you know, yesterday we had the province uh, approve the environmental assessment with the addendum of the addition from the traffic circle all the way to the Eastgate Square. So uh, it's a milestone uh, that has to be crossed, and uh, we are moving forward. And uh, you know, council by a an eleven to four, eleven to five margin. Uh, approved advancing the environmental assessment and i think that's an indicator that there's a a desire to move forward and get this project uh, up and running so what does this mean as far as the project where are we uh in the timeline of things what happens next right well so we're on we're on the original timeline that we set out uh you know a year and a half ago uh, there, uh, the RFQ is out, and uh, that's a request for qualification. So, for potential bidders that want to bid on this project, they have to be qualified. So that uh, that that request is out there, and I think as due in the next uh, month or so. And then uh, we're heading towards the RFP stage, which will take uh, you know quite a bit longer, uh, probably to the uh, the beginning or mid- middle of next year. By the time the RFPs are in and and, and assessed and decisions are made in terms of how that's going to move forward and with what which which potential bidder and then uh, in the in the meantime we hope to uh, sort out some some details around the operating operating and management agreement between the city of Hamilton and Metrolink so lots to do and uh, certainly not uh, where you know there's, this is a big project uh, lots of details to sort out but we're uh, moving forward I think pretty aggressively uh, any idea at this point when shovels going in the ground? Uh, are, are we still on time for that? Yeah, we're we're talking 2019. So the the hope was that we we get this uh, all uh, RFPs nailed down, operations and management agreement nailed down by uh, by in 2018 or you know sometime in September October 2018, and then uh, ready for shovels in the ground for uh, early 2019. So that's been the that was the original stated uh, you know timeline, and uh, we're still on that timeline, subject to any other changes that might happen between now and then. Uh, and obviously, uh, the this environmental assessment having to do with the extension back out to Eastgate. How did we handle costs with that? With putting that back on the plan. In terms of cost, yes. Uh, well, that's yet to be yet, that's yet to be determined. Obviously, there's a belief that it'll all fit within the one billion dollar. Uh, funding envelope. The original entire length, as you recall or may recall, was from Eastgate to uh, to McMaster, and that original pricing a couple of years ago was $814 million. So there's certainly a lot of wiggle room there, and uh, there's a belief that uh, even though prices pricing might have gone up some, that uh, that it'll still fit within that original billion-dollar uh, envelope. So but we won't know that until the bids are in. Uh, clearly, the uh, you know the bids will determine uh, what the pricing is, and then uh, you know if 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 things need to be adjusted based on that, or if more money needs to be found, then we'll know that once the bids have been uh, delivered. But 
you know, we, it's a billion-dollar project. I would think that uh, anyone that's, out, that's bidding out there will certainly try and keep within the billion dollars and uh, and make this uh, an effective and efficient and uh, well-built, uh, you know, public transit system. Uh, the discussion over stops is that over? Uh, obviously, remembering the debate about a Bay Street stop is that is that train come and gone per se? We have what we have uh, right now. Yeah, I mean we're at uh, we're at the fourteen uh, stop stage. Uh, you know, there's there's still a potential for you know having that uh, considered. I think, but uh, you know the potential is small. But uh, I wouldn't dismiss it as still an opportunity. But uh, you know, certainly that hasn't been. Uh, uh, approved and uh, if it, it, depending on what the uh, you know amount of money the bidding uh, you know comes back at, if it's uh, you know considerably lower than the billion dollars, then there may be an opportunity to look at some additions that might uh, might uh, add value to the entire project. But you know to to be a rapid transit system, you need uh, uh, you know you you can't have a stop every block or else it's not mm-hmm. rapid anymore. So, right. So uh, we're at about 14 stops between Eastgate and uh, and McMaster, and uh, I think that that kind of mirrors the B line. And uh, over time, that will be uh, continue to be rapid as congestion happens in all of our streets. Uh, you talked about operation and management. There's been lots of uh, discussion of late uh, about HSR being a part of all of this. Uh, talk about what the model will be and and the advantage of of having an owner operator. Well, an owner. I mean, the the way the bidding is done is not only do you require the bidder to uh, to, to put a price on the quality of the project or, or to build the project, but uh, you also want to require them to operate and manage the the project. So if you tie the two of them together, then they're responsible from for the entire project, uh, the design, the build, and the operations and management. And I think that's a I think that's a wise step to take in terms of getting effective, cost-effective, and quality bidding happening. Uh, if the, the builder is responsible for long-term maintenance, then uh, you know you can see how that ties together in terms of, you know, ensuring that they're building a product that's going to stand up over time. So I think that's a wise step to take. Uh, you know, I understand the union, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the transit union is interested in uh, having public or, or unionized members uh, operate the uh, facility. Uh, you know, their 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 push on privatization is a little bit disingenuous because this is going to be a public facility, full stop. Uh, it's going to be managed by uh, Metrolinx, and uh, the revenues is going to are come, coming to the city of Hamilton. It's going to be a partnership between the two of us. Uh, and so, you know, the HSO, the HSR piece is, um, you know, a little late, and if but... That doesn't preclude uh, a bidder from approaching the HSR and, uh, you know, seeing that there are opportunities for them to uh, to work with the HSR in terms of operations and management. So it's not excluded, but it's not necessarily included in the arrangement as, as well. So is it necessarily about the HSR being uh, running the LRT or is it about making sure the LRT is unionized? Well, I mean, you'd have to ask the uh, the the... the Amalgamated Transit Union folks—they're out there making the case that it, uh, it, it, that we ought to require the HSR to be part of the process. That hasn't been part of the process right from the very beginning. That's not what we agreed to. Uh, but if their interest is to have unionized, uh, you know, drivers, then uh, you know I see no reason why uh, once the uh, once the uh, the line is established and people are hired that they can't be unionized through the Amalgamated Transit Union. I, I can imagine that would happen in a heartbeat. Uh, we uh, we want to require that uh, fair wage our fair wage policy applies to whatever arrangement is made, that uh, that the revenues come to the city of Hamilton, 
uh, that we continue to uh, to have a very strong hand in uh, you know the kind of the day-to-day operations so that it can be integrated into our overall transit system. But Kitchener Waterloo had uh, a, a builder uh, that uh, that contracted to build the uh, the, the uh, LRT, and they also have a private operations and management agreement, uh, and it's uh, you know seemingly going to work very successfully. And I think that's a, a healthy model from the bidding perspective. Uh, over the long term, if it becomes uh, you know unionized members, I think that'd be a terrific thing. Uh, what can we learn from what is going on around us, specifically Kitchener Waterloo? Are there lessons to be learned there? Yeah, I mean we uh, we've tapped into Kitchener Waterloo on, on on many levels in terms of the, the lead up to uh, how do you get this uh, kind of project approved and in place and, and moving forward. Uh, you know some of the lessons in terms of communication and uh, the the business impacts and how do you mitigate uh, all have been uh, lessons that we've learned from Kitchener Waterloo and hope to improve upon as we uh, kind of roll out uh, the entire process here in Hamilton. So yeah, there's much to learn from other projects and uh, uh, you know not, and they're not the only ones. I mean there's a project happening in uh, Ottawa, the second phase of their uh, LRT project happening in Ottawa right now. Uh, so uh, we're, we're going to be learning lessons from all of those projects and bringing them to Hamilton so that we can uh, use best practices to, uh, to make a, as smooth as possible a transition from uh, what's currently a bus line to an LRT line and, 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 and gain the benefits of, maximize the benefits out of that investment. And that is really the key to uh, you know, what we've been pushing forward is, is, uh, is the LRT that uh, inspires additional investments that we know are already happening. And uh, recently, there was an article put out in the Kitchener-Waterloo record that indicated that uh, up until now, when the line isn't even open yet in Kitchener-Waterloo, they've already experienced a $2 billion of uh, building permit investments as a result of the uh, introduction of the line. So those are significant uh, you know, benefits that uh, we have been saying has been part of the major drive to push for an LRT system here in Hamilton. Uh, Mayor Fred, uh, Hamilton obviously in a great spot right now. I just, and I know you're on limited time and we've caught you uh, probably with a little R&R going on there. Um, your thoughts on the Toronto Life article and what is happening in Hamilton right now and, and, and what you're seeing come to fruition? You know, I mean, we, uh, as I've said in many occasions, uh, you know, we're considered to be, uh, you know, the what what uh, Brooklyn is to New York City, we are now to Toronto, and uh, so, so that cool cool place to be, a uh, a real city with uh, great history, great architecture, uh, uh, somewhat better quality of life in terms of uh, congestion, and uh, you know some of the problems that they're experiencing in Toronto, we don't necessarily have here yet, and that's why LRT is so important to get out ahead of that. Uh, and uh, you know we we are you know attracting a lot of people that. Uh, that uh, a lot of millennials, in fact, that are interested in the kind of great culture and music, music and theater and arts and uh, and uh, uh, gallery, you know, scene that's uh, that's happening in a very significant way, and uh, the restaurant scene that is expanding uh, significantly. Mm. Uh, and, and in many respects, uh, Toronto-based restaurateurs looking at Hamilton as uh, as an opportunity for you know somewhat lower cost in terms of their operating and. Uh, Operating costs, and uh, still a very much a very much restaurant-oriented town that is now busy, you know, Monday through Monday. Uh, it used to be that they're only busy, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and mm. it seems now that today that people are very keen on, uh, you know, participating in the restaurant scene all through the week. 
Mayor Fred Eisenberger has been with us, City of Hamilton. Uh, Mayor Fred, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. Have a great summer. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Robert Mueller, the special counsel who is looking into the Russian connection with regards to the jury in the United States, or sorry, the uh, election in the United States, has issued a grand jury subpoena in connection with meetings between uh, Russian lawyer, a Russian lawyer, and Donald Trump Jr. Uh, this continues, of course, uh, heating up the discussion around whether Donald Trump had anything or the Trump organization had any sort of uh, encounter with Russians uh, during the time of election uh, at a campaign rally in West Virginia on Thursday night uh, Donald Trump said uh, quote fake story that is demeaning to all of us and most of all demeaning to our country and demeaning to our Constitution you have to ask the question why doesn't he just let it run its course uh, rather than um, trying to derail the investigation uh, at the end of the day, it appears he's acting more guilty than he certainly says that he is. To talk more about all of this, Richard Painter is with us. Uh, S. Walter uh, Ricky, Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and is with us now. Hello, Richard. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, are you surprised Robert M- uh, Mueller is assembling a grand jury? Is this the norm or is this out of the ordinary? No, this is uh, certainly uh, par for the course when you have an investigation of uh, criminal conduct, and uh, there's abundant evidence of uh, criminal conduct, certainly by the Russians. And the other question is who helped them and who helped them distribute the uh, hacked emails, but also we have evidence of obstruction of justice and false statements by a number of people, and then there also may very well be financial crimes uh, committed with respect to financial relationships with the Russians. So there's a whole lot of stuff being investigated. And uh, because there's a grand jury, that doesn't mean that anyone is necessarily going to be indicted. But there's a significant chance of that. And that's why there's a grand jury to investigate and then decide whether anyone ought to be indicted. The fact that it has made it to this level, what does that signify? Well, uh, it's a serious investigation, and the president has to stop talking about it and saying it's fake news. Uh, and he, he really shouldn't talk about it. And the, I was the chief ethics lawyer at the Bush White House in uh, 2005 to seven, and, and there were investigations going on then as well. And it was White House policy that you did not talk about a pending investigation. Uh, the president didn't, neither did anyone else. Uh, but here they seem to want to talk all the time, and then they're saying things that just don't make any sense. Uh, everyone from the president to uh, Kellyanne Conway and a whole bunch of them uh, are just saying stuff that isn't true, and, and that's not helping at all. And, and indeed, uh, when you start talking about a criminal investigation, you say things that aren't true, or you tell other people to say things that aren't true, you can get into an obstruction of justice situation pretty quickly. Uh, he told this crowd, the Russia story is a total fabrication. It's just an excuse for the greatest loss in the history of American politics, re- referring to his win over Hillary Clinton. Uh, it makes them feel better when they have nothing else to talk about. Uh, in, in response to what you just said, Richard, why does he not just keep quiet on this? Because if he is innocent with every word, he just seems to draw more suspicion towards himself. Well, I don't, it's just very bad judgment. I think there's some psychological issues that come into play here. He's uh, obsessed with the election, 
and with the race against Hillary Clinton. He keeps talking about Hillary Clinton, and he doesn't realize that uh, that's not what the American people want to hear about. They want to hear about what he's going to do with the president, and they don't want to hear about Hillary Clinton anymore and Hillary Clinton's email. We don't have any interest in that. Uh, we have interest in what's going on now, and Robert Mueller is going to handle the Russia investigation. The president should just say nothing about it. Uh, and go about his business of being president and, and start obsessing about it and stop obsessing about Hillary Clinton. Would his lawyers not tell him that he's just incriminating himself the more he draws attention to this issue? I think any halfway decent lawyer would tell him to do that, but he doesn't want to do it. And the White House staff isn't helping. we got people like Kellyanne Conway and Sebastian Gorka and you got a number of them who just can't keep their mouth shut, and they can't tell the truth when they talk, and that eggs it on. Uh, and I would think that uh, General Kelly, as chief of staff, would at least put a lid on the White House staff talking about the investigation and telling lies, and then maybe the president might might get the message. Uh, that it's time to move off this topic and focus on the real issue. Uh, you mentioned the new chiefs of, of staff, General Kelly. Uh, he has been in there for a couple of days now. Are you surprised he doesn't have more of a handle on this? W- where do you think that's going moving forward? Will these two end up at loggerheads like Trump does with most of his staff? Well, we'll see where that goes. Uh, as I say, I think the best thing General Kelly could do is whip the White House staff into shape and get rid of the people who are shooting their mouth all the time and not the truth. And, uh, and then um, uh, he could focus on the White House staff because they report to him. Uh, it's going to be a lot tougher taking on the president. Uh, and uh, that may or may not be possible. But the, the president is certainly hurting himself a lot every time he talks about either the Russia investigation or Hillary Clinton. Uh, can Trump remove Mueller? Well, he could try, but the way he'd have to do that would be to replace the attorney general. So he'd have to fire Jeff Sessions, who has a lot of friends over in the U.S. Senate, and then put someone else in there. And that someone else has to be willing to turn around and fire Mueller, which would be obstruction of justice. Uh, and so I don't know. There, uh, there are going to be very many people who want to be acting attorney general just for the uh, uh, purpose of uh, committing obstruction of justice, uh, especially an act the attorney general will, of course, never get confirmed by the Senate after they uh, laid a hand on Robert Mueller. So it, it, this is a no-win proposition for the president to try to uh, monkey around with a Russian investigation that way. Uh, he calls it a witch hunt. Is, is there any truth to this at all? Is this politics just got in the way of clearer heads? Well, uh, <laughs> it's getting in the way of his... And right now, I mean, it's a serious investigation. We don't know yet who committed what crime. But uh, I should emphasize that lying in connection with a criminal investigation is itself a crime. Uh, if lies are told to prosecutors, anyone else in the federal government. And uh, I, I really think the president ought to just stop commenting on it uh, and uh, focus on other things. But you certainly never talk about a criminal investigation if you're not going to tell the truth. And that being said, he has the perfect out, does he not, by saying it's under investigation. I can't comment. Well, exactly. And that's exactly the policy we had in the George W. Bush administration when we had uh, investigations going on with respect to uh, the Valley Flame scandal, a number of things. And uh, the comment of the White House, even when the uh, chief of staff for the vice president was indicted, Scooter Levy was indicted, the policy was we do not comment on ongoing investigations. He didn't run around saying it's a political witch hunt and a bunch of other nonsense. He 
just that we do not comment on ongoing investigations. Uh, getting back to the meetings that Donald Jr. had uh, and Russian lawyer and such, and 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 then the the discovery that that Trump was involved in uh, correspondence with Do- with Donald Jr. and in, in what he was going to say uh, and this sort of thing. Uh, do you think Donald Trump or his, or anybody in his organization? had any sort of meetings in order to uh, advance their um, their agenda? Or, or do you think they just made some really bad decisions along the way? Well, I don't know what happened with respect to the Russians. We know about that one meeting. We know some of what was said in that meeting. And it appeared to me to be a quid pro quo. We got the dirt on Hillary. We want the sanctions against Russia lifted. Uh, that's what appeared to be going on. But uh, we don't know what the follow-up was. We don't know whether there was discussion of the hacked emails, uh, which would be criminal, any conspiracy to decide what to do with a stolen email that the Russians had gotten through hacking. Uh, we just don't know all the facts yet. So I think that's going to be Bob Mueller's job with the grand juries to get the facts, and then we can take it from there. Where does this this leave the supposed relationship between Putin and Trump? Where is all of this now? I mean, Trump seems to blame Congress for the sticky relations between Russia and the United States. Where is that relationship now? Well, or does uh, it depend on who you good. ask? Yeah, it's not very good right now. But what happened is uh, Putin expected that if he uh, got into this election and put Trump in there, that he'd get the sanctions lifted and that. Uh, you know, he'd get what he wanted uh, by getting Clinton out of the way. And what's happened is Congress has said, no, uh, it's not going to work that way. And a bipartisan, uh, you know, overwhelming majority in the House and the Senate passed the sanctions bill, and the president was not going to go ahead and veto that and then have that overridden. Uh, so uh, Putin's really in a in a bad situation. Uh, I think he, he did a lot to help the Trump campaign, and uh, including some uh, computer hacking and uh, illegal activity, espionage, and he didn't get anything in return for it. Uh, he's an unhappy camper, for sure. So does he have, no pun intended, a Trump card here? Does he have something, a carrot he can still dangle over Trump's head? I mean, where does, you know, obviously well, this relationship is sour. Yeah, I mean, he's got a lot of intelligence he's been gathering, probably on Democrats and Republicans alike. And he may try to blackmail people into getting what he wants. Um, we just don't know what he has up his sleeve. Uh, that's the way the Russians operate. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's an unfortunate situation uh, that President Putin chose to uh, uh, you know meddle in American politics. It's backfired on him. Uh, will Trump be able to convince even his supporters uh, whatever is revealed in this investigation as being true, or will he just say it's all fake and wrong and everyone's out to get him too, no matter what the scenario? Well, it seems to be he's choosing the latter approach. The problem is the number of supporters dwindling uh, as he continues to talk about it this way. I, I think he could maintain some base of support uh, for the time being if you just focus on the issue. Stop talking about Russia. Stop talking about Hillary Clinton and her email, which nobody cares about, and talk about the issues. And at least I think he could hold some of his support uh, until uh, there actually were indictments uh, by Robert Mueller. And even then, if he gets his mouth shut, he he might uh, be able to maintain some support for his presidency. 
Uh, we've had you know rank, high-ranking officials in the, the Bush White House. One was indicted, convicted, Scooter Levy, the vice president's chief of staff. We have other White Houses who've had people get in trouble. Um, Clinton's did. Uh, you know, the important thing though is for the president to keep his keep his mouth shut and not comment on it. Don't go around saying the prosecution is just a witch hunt. Just do his job. Uh, the stock market is up. Uh, Trump has tweeted on this, saying that everybody's ignoring how great America is doing and getting caught up in this winch, uh, wish, uh, witch hunt. Rather, I- Is America doing better under Trump? Is, is his uh, presidency, uh, is the stock market going up a result of his presidency? Well, I think he forgets we live in a capitalist economy. I mean, wealth is created by the private sector, not by the government. Uh, and the business uh, cycle uh, uh, is determined by a wide range of factors, but uh, uh, who the president is uh, is, uh, is not a, uh, a substantially uh, important factor. The Federal Reserve policy is important. A number of things are uh, way into uh, uh, the business cycle. Uh, the best thing the president of the United States can do is uh, at least try not to screw it up. Uh, so that you can have some economic growth. And we, we got some in the latter part of the Obama administration. At least they weren't badly screwing it up. And, and the Trump people right now aren't screwing up the economy. But the risk is uh, that if they uh, start something with China or with North Korea and then that spills over with China, uh, you know, try to create distractions from this Russia investigation uh, through confrontational foreign policy, that could that could bring a crash to that stock market pretty quickly. So, uh, no, I wouldn't give him any credit for it. And uh, if he could just uh, keep his hands off the economy and not start any international crises, uh, we might be able to keep some growth going here. When this uh, election, uh, the result of this election was announced, uh, a lot tried to figure out uh, exactly how it all happened. In the end, it was discovered that on both sides of the fence, people were just upset with the status quo. They didn't want, uh, it was an anti-establishment vote, much like Brexit, anything uh, but the incumbent sort of thing. Um, And people voted for Trump, voted for change. Uh, what do the Democrats need to do moving forward? How do they, uh, there was a poll out recently that said uh, people are upset that all they, all they seem to be doing is, is trying to hang Trump as opposed to giving them the alternative that put Trump in there in the first place. Are, are, are either one of these parties realizing what has happened here and trying to address what the people really want out of this? Well, I've been involved with the Republican Party for some 30 years, so I feel a little bit... Uh... Uh, biggest, uh, I don't know whether I'd give good advice to the, the Democrats. Uh, uh, what we've got here, though, is unfortunately... But even on both, uh, even on both parties, Richard, yeah. I mean, each one seems to be missing the mark of, of identifying with the American voter. We're, we're having the same in, in pretty much all countries. So, so what do both of these parties have to do to resonate with the voter again and, 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 and dissuade this anti-establishment movement? Well, I think they need to stop playing partisan politics and obsessing with partisan politics and with their campaign donors. I mean, all of them, they just cast out of the very small number of people who put money into the political campaign. And they had to focus on the national interest, uh, not on themselves. Uh, and they're doing that in both parties. And it's, it's really unfortunate. Uh, you know, right now, of course, the Democrats see low-hanging fruit. This is easy to take pot shots at Trump because a lot of Republicans think that Trump's uh, uh, somehow uh, out of joint here. He's not, you know, focusing on the right issues and he's not telling the truth about stuff. So that's easy for the Democrats to go after. But 
at the end of the day, they're not going to have a uh, political party that works unless they got a program, a way of talking about that program with ordinary people, not just with the far left, and then you know getting the program implemented. Uh, and uh, the Republicans need to figure out how to run people for office who can be uh, effective presidents and effective senators and congressmen, uh, not just people who go out there and appeal to a crowd of uh, far-right uh, uh, people show up at these rallies and scream and yell about Hillary's email, because that's not what interests 99 percent of the American people. Richard Painter has been with us, professor of corporate law, University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, and, of course, served uh, under the Bush administration. Richard, fascinating discussion. Thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I don't know. It's terrible to be having this discussion heading into a long weekend. There should be a law against this. You should not be able to uh, criticize the sausage going into a long weekend. People are filling up their propane tanks as we speak. They're they're buying their briquettes and lighter fluid. And now we're going to question what the hell is in a sausage? Who cares? Well, some people do. Uh, A federally funded study has found that 20% of sausages across Canada contain things that weren't on the label. Are you surprised? How many of these were taken from a uh, cart in a city square? Uh, 20% of the sausages across uh, Canada contain meats other than meats that were on the label. Now, you may go, but apparently that's low compared to other countries, like, for example, in Europe, where 70% of samples uh, contain ingredients that were not uh, on the label. I wish I'd known that before I went. All right, uh, let's bring in Rosie Schwartz, registered dietitian, nationally best-selling author of the Enlightened Eater's Whole Goods Guide, uh, rosieschwartz.com, to find out more. Rosie's with us now. Hello, Rosie. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Um, Are you surprised about these numbers? I mean, you know, are we supposed to know what's in a sausage? (laughs) Yes, we are supposed to know and they should not be that high. Um, In this day and age, I would think that the Canadian Food Inspection Agency has already, had already looked at how to um, check what was in the package of food. I mean, they, they commissioned the study because they wanted to see if the technology was, was good and could determine whether it was the correct meat or not. But I, I think we need to, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency needs to be more proactive. I mean, we need to know what's in our food. People, people have allergies, people have dietary restrictions. And so if we have food labels, why not? Why are we not checking to see what's in food and why do we need a study as opposed to, let's say, random sampling? This is a bigger issue than just taste or someone's uh, preference from one thing to another, isn't it? Oh, for sure. People, people do have allergies. Um, you know, some people, for example, and um, they, they found that um, that some were labeled as beef and had pork in it, for example. 
Some people do have allergies to pork, or they may have an allergy to turkey. One one of the one of the sausages they tested um, was labeled as turkey, and there was no turkey in that sausage. Mm. So why is this happening now? We we need to know what's in our food. So are twenty percent seems high. I mean, you know, I guess when you compare it to Europe, it's not that high. Uh, it's not seventy percent, which is you know flabbergasting. Why even have a label? Um, but but twenty percent does seem kind of high, doesn't it? Even, I mean, for the accuracy of a label's sake. Absolutely, and and if this kind of thing is happening, that one out of five sausages is contains the wrong, you know, doesn't contain what's in the package, then um, it means that companies are feeling quite free to be doing this. This is, this is food fraud. And um, so, so we need to know that when we buy a certain food that, um, that the government is randomly testing these products. The food companies need to know this. And if, if, if there are penalties for mislabeling food, then companies will be more careful. Now, 70% is, to me, um, in Europe, that's, I, I wonder how they came up with that figure because um, that, that, to me, seems outrageous mm. to have 70%. But if, if it's, let's say, with sausages or if, um, if people are putting, putting, you know, let's say even other products, if they're putting, if they say it's got, you know, it says that it's got wheat in it and they're putting in other grains, it just opens up a whole can of worms here that um, can we trust the food labels? Uh, and especially when we seem to live in a society where there are lots of food allergies prevalent now. You know, you're talking about not even so much meat, but if if you're this lax when it comes to meat, what's what's the policy on other foods, as you mentioned? Exactly. It's happening with fish, where fish, um, that people are buying fish, and, um, and it may not be the kind of fish that they think they're, um, they're purchasing. I think one of the things that's really important, Scott, is that um, Canadians need to know that if they have a problem with food, if they get sick when they eat something, if they suspect that a food does not contain what they think it should contain or does contain, um, they should be contacting the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Uh, how do we inspect for this sort of thing? How do you detect uh, what strains or, or what is in a, a product like a sausage? And it, does this all come down to lack of inspection, lack of inspectors? I, I do believe that it does because the, c- the consumer can't unless they have a problem with the food or if they, you know, if they're, if they're, you know, savvy about what's, you know, what different meats are. If, and, and so, you know, if somebody were a butcher and they were tasting, um, and they were tasting a sausage, they might be able to tell, or, or even a, you know, a chef. But the average person who is buying turkey sausages might not know that, um, there's chicken in there. And, and so that comes down to, the inspectors randomly inspecting these foods and testing for them. And if they're doing that now, maybe this is why they commissioned the study in the first place, but, um, but they said that they commissioned it back in, in 2000, 
and 13. Um, I know that, you know, studies take a long time, but this is two, 2017. Yeah. We, should, we should be able to have these, these foods tested. And, and food companies need to know. These producers need to know they could be in trouble if they're, if they're putting in something else. And that's, there has to, I mean, it's not that we need to regulate um, based on, you know, penalties and fines, but obviously with results like this, we do. Uh, why would a manufacturer do this? Why, um, why does this happen? Well, there there are lots of reasons. Sometimes it may be cheaper um, to to put in a different kind of meat. I mean, one of them found horse meat. Yeah. Um, but but let's say you're making sausages and you have too much you have too much pork, and you're supposed to be making beef sausages and you want to use up the pork. Yeah. Um, then you've you know you're you've got a big. It. Then that may be the reason why they may be, you know, they may it may be supply and demand within the sausage maker. Um, I don't think when you find one in five that it's a mistake. I don't think they've done it by accident. If you're putting in um, chicken instead of turkey, then that's that's not a mistake. What about the amount of filler or or other products that go in? Uh, they said that this was at least one percent. Is that significant? Well, in terms of the fillers, I, I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Um, uh, how much of these fillers would be in each sausage? They said uh, at least one percent, and that couldn't come from the changing of a blade or contamination, oh, oh, cross yeah. contamination, or such. There was definite amounts. Yeah, it, 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 is one percent a lot? It, um, it, but I think that they were predominantly they were there was much more than one percent. Right. So I think that that's the issue is that this seem to be done on purpose as opposed to, you know, as they said, um, you know, if they were changing blades and there right. was a little left over and, and, it, you know, there was some cross-contamination. This isn't cross-contamination. This is, this is, sounds like it's very deliberate. Uh, do you think this is a practice industry-wide? Do you think this is an isolated issue? I guess if the number's as high as 20%, it's, it's an industry issue. It yes, it's it certainly sounds like it is, and then but then you have to ask the question. Um, we see, for example, um, nutrition labeling on these, you know, the nutrition facts box, which tells you what the nutrients are, what the sodium content is. Is the sodium content? Yeah, um, how accurate are those numbers? Yeah. yeah, and so it just this kind of thing breeds mistrust in the food supply. Hmm. And um, so the question is, should, should, if this is happening, um, what, what is the government going to do about it? And are they going to test randomly to see what's in, what's in the food? What about the U.S.? How do they compare uh, to all of this? Do they have stricter conditions or guidelines than what Canada does? Um, in some cases, in some cases, they they do more testing. I'm not sure right now um, what is happening on many levels in the U.S. Hmm. So um, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think that there has been um, that the FDA does test 
you know, does test these things. And, and it would be also the, um, you know, in terms of looking at agriculture departments and so forth. But, um, but I think that the, there is a movement towards decreasing the, um, you know, inspectors, for example. And I think that's happening in the U.S. as well. But I think that in order to to make sure keep the you know keep the food companies and the manufacturers honest, I think there there we need to have inspectors or we need to have more random sampling so that you know maybe you don't have as many but companies need to know you could be checking on this so you know you don't you don't want to be caught with this kind of thing happening with your company. As a consumer, are we more interested in calorie count and and sugar or salt or sodium or something like that than we are the actual ingredients? No, I th- well it depends on the individual because some people would be more interested in, you know, the calories or the sodium, um but if you've got a food allergy or yeah. their foods or if you're trying to avoid pork, you know, if mm-hmm. you know, um Muslims for example, um, don't eat pork. Jews, um, some will only eat kosher meat, so they know what's in their meat, but others will eat um, meat that's not kosher, but they're avoiding pork. And yet some of these sausages had pork in them. Uh, we had one listener ask, uh, why, why weren't these, uh, why weren't these uh, manufacturers named? Why don't we know who they are? I think they should be. I think they should be. I think that companies need to be accountable. I mean, this is a Canadian food inspection agency that's doing this, so why would they not? Are they using this perhaps as a, uh, a tool to, um, to discipline perhaps and, and not make it public at this point? I mean, is there advantage to, to not making the names public? Well, part of the thing may be that the, um, the scientists may not have known which companies were involved because sometimes you want to um to keep the of, anonymity yeah. yeah to blind what's called blind the researchers yeah. you know not have them know that it's a particular company so that um that they won't have any kind of bias towards it you know if you find that one company has produced you know four sausages and they're all wrong and then you get the next company um the same company and you have a sausage does that affect the researchers' um, findings? So probably they didn't have the names of the company when they started, but I would think that um, I would think that they could identify them. Uh, what will uh, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency do with this in- latest information? Do you think how will that change their process and procedure? I mean, obviously they did the inspection with, yeah. or they did this study along with the University of Guelph. What do you think they're going to do with this? What do I really think, Scott? <laughs> they're not. What shelf? Do what shelf will it go on? Yeah, I, I, you know what? I have, um, I've, I've seen at different times where. Um, Companies have been caught doing things. Um, but isn't that the best way to change this? I mean, we remember when Maple Leaf uh, had their issue with Listeria. Man, they jumped on top of that, and, and, and it was it was touted as one of the best uh, PR examples of how to handle a, a crisis the way this company did. So, you know, at the end of the day, is that not the best way to, to fix this problem? People were dying with the Listeria. 
And yeah. when it comes to, oh, they put different kinds of meat in and they give them wrap on the knuckles and yeah. say, you shouldn't be doing this. Right. Um, that's not good enough. What they should be doing is that they should be clamping down on these companies and they should let them know there's a problem here. I don't know what the fines are for that type of thing. But if you're if you're the one the company that's doing this and then you see this, but then there's no action after this, then um, who cares if you're the company? So I think that what we need to do as Canadians is say to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, what are you going to do about this? How are you protecting me? as a consumer against food fraud? How are you protecting me against improper labeling? And um, and so I think we, if we don't see the, um, the food inspection agency telling us what they plan to do as a result of it, then, um, then mm. nothing's going to happen. So I think that, you know, as the media needs to, to the CFIA and say, um, can you tell me what your plans are? Yeah. Um, and so I think that we need, as Canadians, to make them um, tell us how they're going to protect us. Rosie Swartz has been with us, registered dietitian, nationally best-selling author of the Enlightened Eater's Whole Goods Guide, rosieschwartz.com uh, to find out more. Rosie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Now, are you going to be having any sausage over the weekend? Um Probably not. <laughs> Have a great weekend. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.